You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Jonathan Adley, who is using Django and Python to build a platform that lets you automate sending GIFs. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform? Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Jonathan Adley, and uh, my background is somewhat complex. So I'm actually a clinical pharmacist by training. That's what I went to school for. Uh, And then my day job is a very unorthodox position. It combined like technology, finance, and pharmacy all together. And uh, it's running like a critical part of uh, a large health system, drug supply chain. But, you know, that has really nothing to do with running in, in my running into production website, um, where it's just me running a Django web application. Okay. Do you want to go into like the TLDR? Like if you gave someone your 30 second elevator, uh, elevator pitch on what your service does? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, so the site is called joyful.gifts. Um, and it's an automated gift gifting service. It takes care of gifts on your behalf. Uh, so basically, you go in, you tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then a gift is selected, bought, and shipped automatically to them for you. And um, it really solves three problems. So the first, you know, it saves you the hassle of shopping and picking gifts, um, especially if you're not good at picking good gifts or you're not a big fan of shopping. Um, second, it saves a lot of time, you know, like... Um, if you have multiple jobs or doing a lot of things in the same time, uh, you may not ha- have the time to spend, uh, you know, doing a lot of shopping for gifts. And the last thing is that it's, you know, it, it scraps and scans the web for prices as well. So a lot of people actually end up saving money uh, when they use Joyful.Gifts. And, you know, um, as far as the team, so it's basically just me as a solo developer um, who did all the, the tech work. Um, and then there's another person in the business side that takes care of the logistics and the customer service and the shipping and all that stuff. But uh, developing-wise, it's just me. Okay. Sounds like a, a pretty useful service because, yeah, picking gifts is really hard. Now, if you sign up for that and you want to have a gift sent through your site, you as the gift sender, like, you know, setting it up, do you pick like a category of stuff that you would potentially want? Like, like what would stop your site from sending like my three-year-old niece like a lawnmower as a gift or something like that? Yeah, so um, so this is a little bit of the secret sauce basically in it. Um, but uh, but first, you put interests uh, or comments or whatever you want when you sign up. So for example, if you're allergic to silver jewelry, so we know not to send you silver jewelry. And then we have some uh, um, very early data science stuff where we were 100% sure that a three-year-old or a four-year-old would not get a wine bottle. Um, and as well, we know too that, you know, as you stick with the service, the recommendation gets better. If you're the people who you send gift to, when they return it, we know that they, they did. Uh, so we can avoid, like if they return two jewelries, for example. So we know that, you know, we avoid jewelry in the future. Uh, so, so yeah, so it does, it does that kind of things when it gets better with time, as well as has a demographics check to make sure that things make sense and occasion check. Uh, where basically um, the gifts that get sent in Christmas is completely different than the gifts that get sent in Valentine is a little bit different than the gifts that get sent in birthdays. Um, so yeah, so there's an initial demographic check. And then after that, there is a, it gets better with time. Very cool. So as for this project here, 
Uh, if you had to guess, in case you don't know offhand, like how long did it take you to ship the first version, like the MVP? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> from working on it, it's actually uh, the I, I I wrote my first line of code ever in, in, in a semi-professional manner, at least um, on May twenty-first, twenty twenty, um, and then that that site was deployed and pushed and ready to use um, and tested by November eleven. So by that, if you count the whole amount, it's six months. But it's probably um, working exclusively on Joyful.Gifts. It probably took me uh, about two and a half months or so. Wow, that's uh, unbelievably impressive, right? Going from zero to a launch site where that's the first lines of code you've ever written. Like, what's your secret for getting up to speed that quickly? You know, I think it's it might be a little bit uh, counterintuitive, but basically don't listen to the internet too much. And uh, stick what you like. If something is working for you, then stick with it. Um, and a lot of the challenge for like beginners is uh, is basically there are so many voices telling them learn this, learn this, learn this. And as you're aware, there like every month there's something new that comes up in web development. And then a beginner will come in and they start learning the basic you know syntax of HTML and CSS. And then someone will be like, hey, you should learn about TypeScript. And someone else will be like, hey, you should learn React. And someone else will be like, hey, by the way, Jaffa is really cool. But I was fortunate and lucky when you know I got into the, that process a little bit earlier, uh, later than most. Um, so I was able to like, you know, worked with Django. I like Django. It makes sense. So I just stuck with it and I got really, really good at it rather than like, you know, get distracted by a million other things. Right. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I, I mean, I've seen pictures on Twitter where there was like a mind map of like, you know, it's so hard to get started as a web developer because you need to know like these 91 different technologies just to like get a whole world going. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, a lot of the things too, they're very cool and they're very innovative and they solve, you know, good problems. But if I don't have that problem, then I don't like, you know, I'm not running like a, a hundred people development team where uh, I, you know, I need to separate them into front end and back end and, and had all incorporate all these technologies. You know, it's just me. So I have problems and, and you know, Django and, and vanilla JavaScript do a wonderful job in solving these problems. Okay, so let's rewind here and just go back to like your decision process. Like what made you choose Django and Python in the end? Yeah, so like I said, it's not like, um, you know, I built stuff using Ruby on Rails and built stuff on Laravel and built stuff using, you know, uh, Express. And then I finally decided to use Django. Uh, basically, my learning process is uh, I used Flask. I liked Flask a lot. Um, and then when I started building with Flask, and I ran into the problem of I have to download a lot of libraries and I wasn't experienced enough to know what library is maintained and what library is not maintained and what library, you know, has a security issue in it and what library does not have a security issue in it. Um, so I picked up Django because it solves this problem for me. And then it just worked and it was great and I had no problem with it. So I, you know, I stuck with it and I, I, I got better and better at it. Right? Yeah. So it's like the batteries included approach definitely worked out for you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When it comes to specific Django features, are you using things like the Django admin? Yeah. So I'm using the Django admin for me um, to do stuff like a little bit quicker. But obviously, like I said, I, we have a, a, a business person who does a lot of the um, like the day-to-day -day stuff. And I build them uh, their own app where you know they can do the things that they want to do a lot quicker than using the Django admin. But I use it for myself if I want to do like something complicated. Uh, right. And then for this Django app, 
do you have it broken up into like different sub Django apps or is it just one big app? Yeah, so I do have, I want to say six different apps, oh, actually eight. Oh uh, yeah, so it's 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 a, it's a big monolith. There's no like microservices or anything. And there is eight um, semi-independent Django apps in there. Um, so. Okay, do you want to like rattle off maybe a couple of them just so folks can get an idea? Yeah, so I have one for like user management, like signing up, resetting your password and all that stuff. Um, I have one for payment, and that's actually the most complicated one. Um, I have one, like I said, for uh, the business user to do their stuff in there. Um, I have one for basically the front facing of the website, um, all the templates, the pricing, uh, page, the about page, all that stuff. And I do have um, another one for um, like the dashboard inside when you actually sign up for the service and you want to see like the history, the upcoming gifts, uh, the gift recipients and all that uh, information. So that's another app. And let me see if I can uh, pull up VS, VS Code. I think that's most of them actually. Okay. So earlier you mentioned that, you know, you have some secret sauce behind the scenes, like helping you to figure out, you know, what's a good gift for a certain person of a certain age in a certain region. Do you use any type of like machine learning for that or is it just basically just... So <laughs> it's actually a lot easier than uh, than uh, than you would expect. It's basically a third party service that it's... Uh, like, again, I don't want to give out all the secret sauce, but it's basically, you know, an outside service where I basically can connect to it and um, they have, they give me the recommendation um, and so far it's been working great. And I'm actually trying, I'm in the process of um, integrating OpenAI, uh, like the GPT-3 and have that be customer facing where people can like, you know, put the demographics and see what kind of recommendation OpenAI uh, AI will come up with. Um, but I don't know how will that work and and, and currently currently, you know, trying to get it, uh, see if it's going to make sense or not. Okay. Now, as for how the gifts end up getting executed in the future, like, let's say I want to, I don't know, give my mom a gift on Mother's Day. Mother's Day, you know, it's months in the future. Do you have some, like, background processing job library in the works here, like salary or something else to handle? Yeah. So, yeah. So, salary is pretty well integrated. I do a lot of stuff on salary. Um, And uh, this is actually... I, uh, you know, it, it carries a lot of the heavy load that we do. Um, but, uh, but you know, you putting in Mother's Day and her age and demographics and interest. So that's obviously a normal like post-degree um, uh, job. And then um, on top of that, Celery does a lot of things in the background. So it would send the business user an email with a report saying, hey, by the way, Nick has a Mother's Day occasion in the upcoming months. And then, you know, the business user then can uh, upload recommendation or upload, uh, uh, like, plan the gift in advance if they want. Um, and then you will get notified. And then, again, if you don't do anything, then the gifts get bought and then things go smoothly. But then you can intervene and say, hey, by the way, I want more details. Or, um, hey, by the way, I, I forgot I added this interest, but it didn't. that's not really true. You know, so let me modify things. So, so yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, but it's basically there's lots of emails back and forth and Celery handles all of that. Yeah, no, that totally answers it. And like when it comes to maybe, you know, the end user, like your customer making a decision on, you know, maybe that gift isn't the best fit or whatever. If they click like no, like an email link or whatever, then will it just like pick a new one for you and give it give you another shot? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, if they don't do anything, just in case if someone like you know goes into this uh, well, from here to show for that gift, if they don't do anything, then the gift gets bought. Um, but if only if they intervene, then then that's when the system modifies it. Right. So it's basically like the Unix philosophy: like no news is good news in this sense. Like don't do anything, and it's all good. Yes. So you mentioned before that this application is uh, just there in a monolithic app. Does that mean that you are using something like Django templates just to render all the HTML with like just a little bit of sprinkles of JavaScript on the front end? Yeah, so so it's Django templates with a lot of vanilla JavaScript um, uh, lines. So there's about f- maybe 500 to 600, 600 lines of JavaScript. And uh, the whole app th- there has about 3,400 lines total of, the, of, uh, of lines of code. Okay. And for that JavaScript, those couple hundred lines, is that just like you know, dialog boxes that pop up and little things like that, or just search or whatever? So a lot of it, so obviously that app has uh, lots of forms. So uh, some of it is to minimize the form friction, just makes things easy where like, you know, um, you click on one button Christmas and everything gets filled for you and you don't have to fill everything manually. So that's, that's the easy part. But the hard part of vanilla JavaScript is the payment. Uh, because unlike you know straight SaaS applications, when it's just a subscription, or if it's uh, or just like you know buying shoes online, when it's just a one-time payment, uh, the payment infrastructure of Joyful.gifts is is very convoluted. Where you can have a subscription, but you can also have um, a per gift fee. You know what makes things easy in the front end is JavaScript, uh, obviously integrating Stripe, and um, so when things go to the back end, um, there are you know, semi-reasonable and no one can like, you know, put like a crazy number, especially for the business user who does a lot of the charging. So, Right. Because, yeah, I would imagine like there probably needs to be rules in place so you just don't give someone like a $4,000 gift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and uh, I don't know if anybody like here had experience of like integrating Stripe um, outside of the normal use cases, which is like, you know, subscription or, or, uh, or a one-time payment, but it can get very complicated very quickly. Okay, if it's not too much trouble, would you mind going over some of the things that were complicated about that? Yeah, so the Joyful Gift structure is there's the subscription, which is, you know, you pay a monthly fee and there's, then, then that's it. That's easy. Um, but the hard part is um, you can do like a per gift pricing where it's basically we buy a gift from on your behalf, we wrap it, we ship it, we do everything, and it's $4.99 per gift. And uh, so f- f- one thing is you have to charge for the gift itself. And then you have to charge that 4.99 fee, and then on top of that, there is the payment processing fee, which is 2.9%, and we pass that to our um, users. Um, and then, and then obviously occasions they change. There's variable occasions in, in there, so you know Mother's Day doesn't come on the same day every week, every year. I mean, um, so we have to account for that as well. And uh, sometimes, you know, we buy the gift, and the, and the people say, hey, by the way, I didn't want this gift. Can you um, you know, do a different gift when we have already bought it. So again, we have to figure out a mechanism to be able to refund them and um, and then charge them again uh, and or charge them for, you know, for the difference if there's a difference. So there's lots of edge cases. And I um, also have uh, DJ Stripe, um, the library in. So obviously that gets synced to my own database. And then um, sometimes, you know, because there's a lot of time periods where you sign up on Christmas and then you have a birthday in, in April, um, the card would need to be re-authenticated or it would be declined because it expired. 
um, and then uh, I would have to bring you back up again and uh, and uh, have you like on the app to do to do the cart. So there, to, I mean, there is a couple of itch cases that were hard to do. So yeah, and also on top of that, are you using the newer Stripe APIs with like the strong customer authentication? Yes. Yeah, I know that was very very tricky to set up for the first time. There was just heaps of complexity versus how it was previously. Yeah, I mean, and the good thing is the checkout, the Stripe checkout now, um, which just came as I was developing the app. It is super super easy if you have like one of these typical use cases. You don't even need the back end to, to actually do it because you can do everything on, on the Stripe website. But again, from my use case, that would have been impossible to do. Right. So I didn't, I didn't go through the flow of like signing up for something on your site, but are you doing all the processing on your back end using like Stripe elements just to have like their form controls? Yes. Yes. I have, you know, everything that goes through the back end, just it's more secure that way. And, um, and then, so there's a lot of talking back and forth between the back end and the front end, um, you know, using JavaScript fetch and, 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 you know, getting the public keys and then passing that to the back end and the back end passing back the secret key. So yeah, it gets, it gets kind of like, it took me, that took me the most actually to do it, to do it. And I'm very proud that it, so far it hasn't broken. And um, it handled a lot of crazy edge cases. So yeah, no, it sounds like you're doing a, a great job. If that's your first app, like getting payments working is hard enough. But when you have a hundred edge cases and like a fairly new APIs, that makes it even harder. Yeah, yeah. And then we had like we had someone sign up with a gift card, and that was accepted. But then obviously, when you try to buy stuff in the future, it doesn't work. So yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. So right. As for the front end, you know, you mentioned keeping it pretty simple there with vanilla JavaScript. Do you just not use any type of pre-processing then at all? Like do you do like ESX JavaScript that gets converted down or like what about SAS for CSS? Like how do you handle all of those assets? I have a, you know, I use a CSS framework called Half Moon. So I don't have, it's not like Tailwinds or anything. I don't do any pre-processing. And for the vanilla JavaScript, I just do, um, you know, plain vanilla, you know, JavaScript, nothing fancy. I don't do any processing. The browser executes what's in there. And um, I do have some issues with compatibility with Internet Explorer, and uh, I'm so glad that they're ending the support for it. Um, uh, but but so far, um, it's working on all the major browsers with no problem. Right, and then that includes Edge as well, right? Like for, you have support for it. Yes, Edge works 100%. I tested it very extensively. So. Cool. So going back to the back end here, are there any packages in your requirements, that text file that really stand out that helped you build this project? Um, I mean, you know, the, I would say that the big ones for uh, for Django is the all OS, obviously, you know, Stripe. Um, I have the import, export. Um, I have Bello because we do a lot of photos. Um, if you like, you want to see the history of the gifts that we bought. Um, what else I have there? Um, yeah, nothing too crazy, actually. Uh, it's, 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 you know, it's a big list, but I don't think any, any, any of them is, is weird. Um, let me actually bolt the, uh, the file. Here we go. Yep. Uh, crispy forms, uh, Siki editor. Uh, if, you know, I have a blog in there. Oh, actually, this is actually a good one. I think people would like that. Uh, I have a, a library there called Django address. So one of the issues in our app is that we ship physical products so the address has to be right and if someone does like a typo or whatever uh, it can cause issues so we have uh, a library called django address and um, it, it integrates with the google javascript uh, sdk 
So as you start, if you if you type your address, it auto completes it for you. Um, so that's that that was a life saving thing. Well, yeah, I can just imagine. Like I know I use Google Maps quite often, and just putting in like the first couple numbers of my address, it's like the whole thing is auto complete. It's amazing. Yeah, it removes friction from like for users, and in the same time, it ensures that the addresses are accurate. So. Yeah. So as for the web server that you use, do you use Gunicorn or UWSGI or something else? Yeah, I use Gunicorn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> See, that's that's how you know I taught myself how to web develop because I don't even know how to say it. Gunicorn. Uh, well, that's a really tricky one because there's like five ways to say it and I think all of them are correct. There's like Gunicorn, Gunicorn. Yeah, Gunicorn or Gunicorn or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe now we can talk uh, about the rest of your tech stack. So, you know, you mentioned that you have Django there, you have Celery running, which I, I guess maybe you're using Redis there as the backend for Celery? Yeah, I'm using Redis as the backend for Celery, Okay, yes. what about uh, primary database? Yeah, so I have PostGre as the primary uh, database. Uh, that's, you know, everything is uh, is hosted on Heroku. And, uh, and that's, yeah, so basically, and I have Docker as well. And, you know, I love Docker. Um, it makes things super easy, and um, and yeah, that's basically the the tech stack: PostGre, Redis, Celery, Django, and Docker. Okay, that's pretty interesting because you kind of mentioned you know this is sort of your first rodeo, keeping things simple. And while Docker is not, I would say, super complicated, it's definitely something that you have to set time aside to learn initially. But I'm glad to see that you went with it. I guess it made it quite easy to run stuff in development once you get your uh, head around how it works. Yeah, and like I said, um, this is one of the things too. Like, uh, why you know sometimes listening to the internet is, is, is not as good as uh, as it seems. But uh, to me, Docker solved a huge problem because as a beginner, you know, you could send, stay a whole week trying to install like Redis to work on your local machine. Uh, and, and you know, Bison, even by something as basic as Bison, uh, it's it's <laughs> some people just get stuck there and never continue. Um, so, and I, I had this consistent issues where every time like I upgrade windows, um, something would break, uh, you know, something that a library would break or, or, you know, I have to go change a configuration file and it becomes really complicated to make salary works. Uh, so, um, it, I took three days and I took your course, dive into Docker and, uh, you know, I, I listened to all the videos and I got a Docker file working. And then that's it. That's basically I have a, I have a basic understanding of how it works, and it's you know it's working for my app. But I mean I wouldn't call myself an expert on it or anything. Yeah, no, that's actually uh, quite awesome to hear. Like I didn't know that you took my Docker course before we even hopped on this call. Glad to see that uh, you're able to get things working. And yeah, about Windows. I mean I'm I'm not sure if you're using like the Windows subsystem for Linux, like WSL2, but. Before that, like I don't even think Redis was able to run on Windows. There was like some weird, like Microsoft old ancient forked version of it that did. But yeah, I totally understand why. Uh, you may want to reach for Docker early on. Yeah, and then like I said, the WS the WSL two came about as I was uh as as I was learning, and um, you know maybe if if I started with it, I may have not seen the huge need for Docker, uh, but um. But yeah, I don't know. I still, I mean, sometimes until this day, when I try to do like, you know, local environment without Docker, sometimes things just don't work. And I don't know, is it because something is wrong with Windows and whatever I have in the machine? Or is it because I'm doing something wrong? And by having Docker on, that just eliminates that problem. I know if there's a problem, I know it's going to be me. Right. Yeah. Because even if you are using something like WSL2, it's like, well, you still need to Install a specific version of Python, set up a virtual environment, install all of your packages, install any system dependencies. If you have 
C bindings in some of those packages. And then it's like, well, then you have to install Redis and Postgres. And now you want to run all of your processes at once. Yeah, it can get overwhelming, definitely. Yeah. Now, going back to your app here, you mentioned earlier that you do send a ton of emails out or, you know, it's, it's pretty email focused. Do you want to go over like what transactional email service you use for that? Yeah. So initially I used uh, SendGrid um, and it was the free tier. And I what ended up happening is a lot of the emails ended up in spam, which was actually breaking to the app and its functionality. Uh, so two weeks and uh, going live, I ended up changing over to uh, AWS uh, Symbol Email Service, and you know so far it has been a lot better, and it's also free. So it, it, you know it was in the future it's a no-brainer. So right, yeah, it's been a while since I looked at AWS's free tier for that. Would you get something like fifty thousand emails a year or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I never even come close to it. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I have not come close to it. And uh, I was doing something wrong with my S3 configuration. So I ended up like doing over 2000 requests in one day by accident. And uh, the bill came for like 18 cents. So I'm like, okay, I mean, even if I exceed the, the free tier, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay, probably. So, and then, so yeah, so that's, so I, I went with it and I don't have any problems so far. So nice. So when it came to setting up hosting, you mentioned that you are using Heroku. What was your thought process around that one? Yeah, so uh, again, this is one of these things where um, I wanted to see like what would solve my problems as as the fastest and the simplest way. I I the first time I deployed anything, I deployed using Heroku uh, and no Docker, and it was actually it was it was not as simple as as someone would imagine because there's like white noise that you have to install and you have to do all these you know extra configuration and stuff. Um, and then I, for Joyful at Gifts, I ended up in, uh, deploying to Heroku using Docker. And from what I understand, this is something that's relatively new. Um, and uh, it's in your Heroku.yml file. Uh, you basically have like a setup, build, and in the build, say you build Docker. And it's like uh, 15 lines of code, basically. And, uh, and, it, and it builds it, and that's it. In the future, you do your changes, and you do git push Heroku master. And it goes live, and it's you know it's very simple, it's very great, and um, so far you know it's not like extra money or anything as far as I'm I'm aware. So nice, yeah. I have not used Heroku with Docker personally, but when you say that YAML file, does it just know that like Celery is your worker and the Gunicorn app is like the regular? Uh, you know, it would be on a Dino. Like, did you have to like marry those two together outside of that YAML file, like in Heroku's UI? Like, how did it know to run things? Yeah, so this is basically here. I'm going to read the line for you. There is the setup, and that's like five lines. And obviously, you put your plans in there. So I have a boost degree, I have a Redis, and I have a Sentry. And then you say build, and you say build Docker, you know, Docker file. And then you release, you know, you release the image that you built in Docker. And then you run, uh, and you run a Gunicorn, uh, and then you run a Celery command. And then under the, when you run the Celery command, you say image is the web. And that's that's basically it. Um, so yeah, it's like 15 lines of code total, and I ended up, you know, copying it from some tutorial out there, and it worked. So, you know, I have no, I have no complaints. I'm, I'm amazed how simple deploying is nowadays. Yeah, if you use Heroku, it really doesn't get much easier, especially if you're starting with ground zero with no prior code to work off of. Now, when it comes to the specifics about Heroku, do you have everything running on like their hobby tier or free tier or a mix of both? 
no, I have uh, I have the the hobby tier, the seven dollar tier, um, a month, and um, and that's it. That's the whole, and it runs everything. It runs Celery, it runs Redis, um, and it runs the, the the database. I have the free tier as well. Um, so so yeah. Um, the only thing that I did not get was this is uh, Flower to monitor the Celery um, processes that's going on. But anyway, you know, I ended up upgrading Celery to Celery 5 and Flower doesn't work with it. So, so I mean, I was going to lose it anyway. So Right. And yeah, for listeners out there, Flower is the web UI component. So you can just take a look at what's going on with your Celery jobs. It is kind of nice to have. Yeah, it is nice to have. But like, you know, if you, if you don't have it, yeah, with Sentry, if there's something breaks, you'll get, you'll get an email saying, hey, by the way, that didn't work. So. Right. So then you have Sentry hooked up for error reporting. What about things like logging and metrics? So I don't have anything for logging, and I want to look into that. Um, but um, I, I mean, I only have Sentry and Uptime, up, uptime ro- Robot um, going. So um, so I know if the site is down, and I know if there's something you know broke. But I don't know. I would like to you know integrate a way to monitor you know the metrics, um, how fast things are going, and so on, as well as do logging. But I don't have anything yet. Okay. So have you ever gotten any weird emails from Sentry? Well, not weird, but 500s coming back, like you had to go and put out a fire somewhere because of errors? So one time, I was actually, um, this is the only bad thing I have about Heroku. I got a very like uh, suspicious email, something about you know the database um, uh, failing or whatever, which scared me because you know if the database failed, then that's a, that's a big problem. And then I, I ended up like trying to figure out what happened for like four hours. And then it ended up, it's one of these things that Heroku does when they do uh, maintenance in their database. Uh, they end up bringing it down and then running a migration and then Sentry picked it up. Uh, but they don't tell you, uh, like the, the free tier has unannounced maintenance. So they don't tell you when they do that. Um, it has it has no impact like on users or anything. It's like a couple of seconds. But if you don't know that in advance, then you'll be running in circles. So yeah, so that's that's one of my experiences. And then um, early on, there's obviously the small bugs that you know a user clicks something that they're not supposed to, or you know some weird behavior, and you go in and and you fix it, and and you know it should be all good. Yeah, that is pretty scary that your database can just go down at any time for unannounced maintenance on Heroku's side. I guess that's their push to get you to go on to the paid tier. Yeah, that's that's basically. I mean, uh, when I was reading about it, that's if you email them, that's what they're going to say. If you want, if you want to, you know, if you want to hear about our maintenance, then you have to sign up to our uh, bait service. Yeah, and then I, you know, I don't, I don't know the prices offhand, but I'm pretty sure like the first paid Postgres is like fifty or sixty bucks a month. Like that is a substantial amount for a project that is just getting off the ground. Yeah, basically, yeah. And then yeah, and like if I knew about it, I wouldn't have worried too much. Like yeah. And now, like for, for someone who's listening to this, if you get this email, then don't worry about it too much. So Yeah. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about, you know, what your deployment process looks like. Like we know with Heroku, you just get push and like that's the magic to it. But do you push your code up to something like GitHub first and then CI kicks in and that pushes it to Heroku? Like how do you have things set up? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I usually, so now everything is essentially stable now and I'm, I'm working on features. Uh, or like if a weird bug that comes up, so I basically branch uh, a future out, work on it, do all the tests, make sure it works, merge it uh, to the master, and push it up to GitHub, and then separately in my local machine do get uh, uh, git push Heroku master, and it, and it goes in there, and that's that's basically the deployment process. And then as for your testing setup, uh, if you had to guess, like 
you know, how many tests do you have roughly? I don't know how many tests I have roughly. I know how many lines because I looked it up before I did this. I have close to 500 line, 460 lines of, uh, of testing. So it's about maybe 20% of the total app. I, I, I didn't measure coverage and it's probably going, if I have to guess, it's probably going to be like 50% or so. And um, I was basically making sure that there's tests for everything that I know will not change anytime soon. Uh, so that's like payment, uh, like all the business logic, stuff like that. Right. All the really, really critical stuff where definitely don't want to do any errors there. But as for testing something like Stripe, where, you know, you might need to actually make an API call out. Do you just mock that out and just put in like a hard coded JSON response? Um, this is what I have. I'll show you. Uh, let me see. Because I remember this is a, I was so proud of myself when I when I got that done. So one of the good things about um, J, uh, DJ Stripe is you can mock um, that JSON response and then sync it uh, and then test what's in there. Um, so for the tests, I have obviously the basic um, you know response status code 200 when you go to the payment setup. And then after that, I do have, um, I use the Stripe test secret key, like the, the testing one, not the live one. I create a customer, a Stripe customer create. I sync it uh, to the digit Stripe. And then I, I test and see what comes back to that. Um, that's basically the, 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 the gist of it. So, so again, it wouldn't it wouldn't taste like very weird stuff. Like if someone bought a you know a, a stolen credit card or whatever, but it would at least test that the payment page is up and that uh, a customer created and then something comes back from Stripe. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I mean, at the end of the day, it's like you really can't control what Stripe does in their black box. All you can know is like I send you this data and you give me something back. Like you can't control how they determine if something's like a fraudulent uh, transaction. So going back to your database setup here with the free tier, does that come with uh, automated backups or is that something you have to do yourself? I believe it comes with automated backups. I know there's backups are being done um, because when I when I had that scare, I I ended up stumbling across uh, somewhere when it says, you know, you have backups and I believe it's weekly backups. Um, but I do not know if it's... Um, if it's something that Heroku does, you know, automatically, and and I can go change the configuration, or it's something that happens in the background and I have no control over. So right, is that something you've thought about changing? Heroku doesn't want like you know people screaming at them for like you know ruining their livelihood. So for for like you know they they do a mistake in their maintenance or whatever. So that's my understanding of the backups that happen. Right, and then I guess also like in the future, if you really wanted to, you can also just back up your data manually right like once a day or whatever you want yeah yeah i mean yeah um you know the next step is is basically uh trying to understand for me anyway trying to understand uh, the dev op uh, like intricacies um so i'm pretty comfortable on, on like you know going in aws and then you know setting stuff up but i don't really understand what goes in the background so i think that will be a good next step for me to uh to, to handle these edge cases. Right. Well, given where you are now, like you're doing a great job just moving forward, right? You have it hosted, you have error reporting, you know, you also have just being notified by Uptime Robot, right? To see if like maybe the homepage isn't throwing a 200. Like you have a pretty good coverage so far. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, I mean, credit to you, Nick. You know, one of the, one of the most helpful things 
that I was in my journey was, um, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of this podcast and I listened to almost all the episodes. And then as a beginner, when someone says, oh, yeah, you know, I have Sentry, go, you know, doing error monitoring. Now, I have no idea what Sentry is, but I know that this expert is using it. So, you know, I go in and look it up and I'd be like, hey, they, that's what Sentry is. And then I go back and integrate it. So, so yeah, this podcast has been super helpful to me. Cool. I mean, I'm very happy to hear that. And that's like the exact use case of why I created the podcast, right? I just want to not only help anyone out there, but also help myself, right? If I'm speaking to someone, like I'm always learning at least one new thing from every episode. So it's always great to discover new stuff from it. Yeah. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building and deploying this app? Um, okay. So, yeah. So, I mean... As I just said, you know, I I listened to most of the, this this podcast episode, so I'm kind of familiar with most of the previous obvious ones, which is like, you know, if you want to build something, then you want to build something that you know how to use. Uh, so I would say that the number one thing that you know, outside of the of the of the stuff that got said before, is um, if you're a solo solo dev or you're building stuff that you know for your own self, um, is to try to take like a market-driven development approach. Um, you know, so there's the test-driven development when you test everything, and that makes a lot of sense if you're like a big company and if you know, like Google, right? If Google, if if Gmail goes down, like it happened today, that's a big deal. So, um, but it was it was it was people on like you know as a solo developer it should be more of a market driven where you want to make sure everything is super fast things are elegant and things are simple because you're going to end up maintaining it for the foreseeable future you don't want to build this you know super complicated thing and uh, you don't work on it for three months and then you go back and you have no idea what you did um, and again, you know, when you're building stuff, you want to think about how many clicks does it take for the user to get where they want, you know, and one thing that, you know, so a funny thing that happened to me is that I worked like super hard and, and the Bayman logic and, and, and the third party integration was recommendation engine and all that stuff. And, um, I was so proud of what I built. And then when I start showing it to people, the first thing that they said is that, oh, it looks weird. Uh, because I didn't pay attention to the the CSS, like the most basic of things. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's one thing I would say is that, you know, pay attention to how things look and feel like. And, you know, simple is better than complex. So Yeah, that is great advice. And that, that must be also pretty brutal to hear, right? It's like you spend all that time working on that. And it's like, huh, that looks weird. Like imagine someone just had like a baby and you just go up to them. And that's what you say to them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's always going to be that kind of person who no matter what you do is going to tell you like, you know, I don't get it. And, and that's okay. It doesn't really matter how how great is the payment logic is if uh, the UX is not good enough for the people to get to the payment logic. Um, and that's just one of the things that I like. You know, I learned the hard way is is you know try to put your uh, be like a user and um, you know assume that that people are are going to get turned off at the first second when something doesn't work the right way. So yeah, I think that's also another great thing, right? It's like we have all these different choices we can do on the back end and we can code things like a hundred different ways. Even if you're just using Python and Django, like there's so many ways to do stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, your web server is responding HTML and the browser is interpreting that and then showing it to the user, right? So it's like, you can do all this fancy, crazy stuff on the back end, but if it doesn't work and look good on the front end, like people are actually seeing in the browser, then it's like, yeah, almost kind of wasted effort. Yeah. No one is going to use it. So, yep. So Jonathan, thanks a lot for coming on the running in production podcast. It was really great having you on. 
Thank you so much, Nick. This is like a, you know, this is a, from listening to this podcast as a beginner and then and then coming on here, it's a, it's like a dream come true. Wow, that's a, that is very awesome to hear. But uh, before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, the easiest way to get in touch with me and where I'm most active is probably Twitter. And it's like at Jonathan underscore Adley underscore. Um, and then the web application that we were just talking about is uh, is joyful.gifts. So there is no www and there is no .com. You just type joyful.gifts in your browser and, you know, it goes from there. Cool. And by the way, for that extension, like .gifts, uh, where did you end up registering that domain at? Yeah, so that was Namecheap. And, um, you know, I had another name that ends with .com, um, but then there was a very, very similar uh, application already. And it was like a difference between I and an E. And uh, and so I ended up changing the names, kind of like class second, and uh, and it stuck. And you know, it's it's. Yeah. I don't know the dot com thing is is uh, is controversial, but so far it's been working, so I have no complaints. Yeah, I think that's a really clever name. It, it fits so well for what it is. Yeah. And I'll make sure to drop links to all of this in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.